Hey, men, let me just take a minute to encourage you to not make this difficult this year, okay? Um, we made a decision back in the spring. Actually, leading up to the men's retreat, I have been talking with my good friend Kyle for years and planning for months about him and a friend of his, Josh Wilhite, who serves in ministry there at Watermark in Plano, about coming and doing our men's retreat. So I was not, I, I couldn't have been more excited about what we were planning for in the spring. And then COVID just rudely interrupted our lives. And we had a choice at that point to say, ah, we'll just do it next year. Or we could look at all that we had planned and said, this is too good to wait. Let's do it in the fall as soon as we get an opportunity to make those arrangements. And let's just do this. I told Brian this week, I want to name the retreat this year, Man Up. He says, well, it doesn't really tell us what we're about. I said, I know, but that's what needs to happen. We just need to man up. We just need to sign up, man up, go be together, and let's enjoy the benefit of all that has been planned and prepared for us ahead of time. So, men, please uh, take the opportunity to do this. Don't make it complicated, all right? Well, last week I talked about how the book of Romans was like the Christian constitution, kind of like the founding document of our faith. And much like the U.S. Constitution, it was written with very specific order and purpose in mind. If you think about the U.S. Constitution, it begins with the preamble, doesn't it? It kind of gives an introduction and an explanation of what this document is all about. That preamble is then followed by seven articles that describe how this newly formed government will function. And then after those articles, you have the amendments that were added to better support the intent of that original document. These are the, the rights and liberties of the citizens who live within this newly formed government. When you look at the Christian constitution in Romans, you see a very similar purpose and order. And Paul begins by describing the total depravity of man. He discusses our sinful condition apart from God. We will begin that this morning, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, but it carries on over into chapter 3, verse 20. Following the total depravity of man, Paul then speaks to the infinite grace of God. He does so beginning in chapter 3 and then on into chapter 5. And here's where Paul describes God's grace-filled uh, solution to man's sinful condition. And then after discussing this, beginning in chapter 6, we learn of God's ongoing work of redemption. He begins by talking about how that applies in the life of the believer, what we call sanctification. And then God's ongoing work of redemption in the world, what we know is God's sovereignty. So man's total depravity, God's infinite grace, God's continuing work of redemption both in our lives and in our world. And then he finishes up beginning in chapter 6 talking about how all this works itself out in the lives of a believer. First, it's applied to our lives. It's applied to what's happening in the world. But there's order and purpose in the believer's constitution that we see written out in the book of Romans. This morning, we'll begin in part one. The total depravity of man, I just need to be honest with you up front, it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. But remember, Paul writes with specific order and purpose. And, and he does so because in order for us to understand the magnitude of God's grace, we must first appreciate the darkness and depravity of our own sin. 
You see, the gospel is really not that good news unless we understand how desperately we need a Savior. And so we're going to begin to understand that this morning. And before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm thankful that everything that you do is done with order and purpose. That you work mightily in our world, in our lives, throughout our history to accomplish your purposes. Good and right and true purposes. And so, Lord, I just pray that we see that being put on display in our passage this morning. And as hard and difficult as it is we'll, to be able to work through the reality of our sin, I pray that it magnifies the truth of your grace and forgiveness and your love and your mercy. And so, Lord, would you work through your spirit to open our hearts as we open your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Romans chapter 1 and begin reading with me in verse 18. It said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. Before we begin in verse 18, take a glance back to verse 17, because last week we talked about, as it says, how the righteousness of God is revealed, and we talked about how that righteousness was revealed in the truth of the gospel, right? But then you go to verse 18, and it says that the wrath of God is now revealed against sin. And these are connected for a reason. Because the righteousness of the gospel requires a righteous judgment against sin. A judge who is truly just cannot turn a blind eye to pe toward people who break the law. And here's the reality. We've all broken the law. We all stand accused. Each of us is personally responsible for having rejected God's revealed truth. Paul begins by explaining how that's true when he talks about how we failed to acknowledge what God undeniably revealed. In verse 18, it says that he describes it as suppressing the truth. Now, when I think about that, I think about someone who wants to keep truth kind of at arm's length. It's an arrogant posture that says, listen, I'll be the judge of what's right and what's wrong. But Paul says, no, no. Actually, that's not how it works. <laughs> he says Paul, uh, that God is the one who reveals what is true, and he has done so both within us and around us. We learned in Ecclesiastes that God set eternity in our hearts. In other words, there's something something within each and every one of us that causes us to, to look for meaning and purpose in life. This is a quest that is reserved only for mankind. There is no other creature that ponders this question, the meaning and purpose of life. And that's because only humanity was created uniquely in God's image. We were created to flourish in a life-giving relationship 
with God. In our very being, deep within us, we know without a doubt that we were created for something more than this world has to offer. Our search for meaning and purpose is satisfied in God alone because nothing temporary will ever fill the void of what is always eternal. God has revealed his truth within us, but also it surrounds us. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that everyone is without excuse. In other words, God's character is clearly seen through God's creation. The psalmist describes it this way in Psalm 19, verse 1. He says, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. See, the universe exists in such beauty and balance, in such a way that it speaks loudly. It, it declares its creator. Instead of life existing through some random events, all that we see gives evidence of an intelligent design. In fact, I think it takes more uh, faith to believe that the universe existed out of some cosmic accident than to see that it is in fact created with order and purpose from a creator God. But no matter where you fall in that spectrum, either decision we need to understand is a decision of faith. Yes, it takes faith to believe in God, to believe that he exists, but it also takes faith, and in my opinion, even more so, to believe that he isn't. God has revealed his truth within us. He has revealed his truth around us, and we either accept that truth or we suppress that truth by determining our own truth. But when we do, we need to understand that we, what we do is we make a decision to be in control of what ultimately exceeds our understanding, and yet we claim to be in control. We reject God's truth by trying to rule our own lives according to our own rules. Look at how he continues in verse 21. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures." Having rejected God's truth, Paul goes on to describe how we now exchange that truth for a new truth. And Paul says we do so with futile speculation, or to say it another way, we use false reasoning. We use our finite minds, limited in every capacity, to describe and understand infinite truths. Professing to be wise, we become fools. It's like having no education in math or physics and yet still determining that you're going to build a spaceship and you're going to fly to the moon. And even though you don't have all the answers, you'll just figure it out as you go. It's completely and utterly foolish. And yet, that's how we live life apart from God. 
I call it arrogant ignorance. Or as Paul says, professing to be wise, we become fools. Rejecting the true God, we become our own God. And let me just tell you right up front, that's never good. Rejecting the true God, we become our own God, and it's never, ever good. Listen to how Paul exchange, uh, describes that exchange that we make. He says, we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, the infinite truth of God, for uh, the image of corruptible man and of corruptible creatures like birds and beasts and reptiles. And let me just tell you, that's a really bad trade, okay? It's like trying to become a millionaire with monopoly money, taking revealed truth and exchanging it for things that we invent, and what we invent is always manipulated to get what we want. False gods are always worshipped with false humility. Because the gods we invent have strings attached, like puppets. Like the scene in The Wizard of Oz. You all remember this, when Dorothy, after that long journey to finally get to The Wizard of Oz, she walks in with her three friends, right? The Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion. And they're there to see the great and mighty Oz. You remember the scene, right? And then all of a sudden, little dog Toto walks over, pulls back the curtain to reveal this normal man sitting behind this curtain, pulling levers and pushing buttons. When we reject God's truth and exchange it for our own truth, we do the very same thing. We trade truth for lies. We profess to be wise when we're only foolish, pulling levers, pushing buttons to get what we want out of life, rejecting the true God. We become our own God, and that's never, ever good. Look at I continues in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be defiled among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We suppress the truth. We exchange the truth. And then Paul says we pervert the truth. Now, three times you'll notice in the remaining verses, he makes the same statement when he says, God gave them over. In other words, he lets us live in our self-determined truth. And in the words of Dr. Phil, I might ask, how's that working for you? We need to understand that this is not some passive release where God says, I'm done with you. I give up, I quit, I'm not trying anymore, this is over. That's not what's happening here. This is a purpose-filled decision with our best interest in mind. As I thought about this, it reminded me of the story of the prodigal son. Because the father knew, listen, the father knew that his son was making a bad decision. When he asked for his inheritance and, and, and demanded his independence, he knew that his son was motivated by selfish gain and the pursuit of selfish pleasure, and it would ultimately end in self-destruction. But this loving father still released his son, but he did not abandon his son. And we know that because he waited patiently for his son's return. 
until his son realized that his inheritance was not in the pursuit of selfish pleasure, but in the security of his father's acceptance. When God gave us over, he is allowing us to experience the darkness of life apart from him. He releases us to live life outside the boundary of his intended design and then reap the consequences of our sinful decision. Paul describes it in Ephesians as indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, willfully incurring the the rightful judgment of God against our sinful decisions. And in the following verses, Paul then describes the reality of our depravity. We see it in our depraved desires in our depraved mind, and then ultimately in our depraved decisions. Listen to what he says in verse 26. For this reason God gave them over, there's the second time, to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward other men, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. First, God gave us over to degrading passions. These are shameful desires outside the boundary of God's intended Design And the example Paul gives us here is a lifestyle of homosexuality. Women who fulfill sensual desires with other women. Men committing what he calls indecent acts with other men. This is undeniably outside the boundary of God's intended design. It's not God's intended purpose in the creative order in human relationships. Because the goodness of God Procreation and the flourishing of humanity cannot exist within the context of same-sex relationships. But, but please understand, Paul is not highlighting and, and, and centering in on one specific sin. This is an example of a lifestyle that is ruled by selfish pleasure, and that lifestyle has many, many forms of impurity. We see it in pornography. We see it in premarital sex. We see it in infidelity. We see it in lust. Have I left anybody out? All of them. Take what is shameful and call it good. Willfully choosing to live outside the boundaries of God's intended design. Paul says there's a due penalty for these sinful decisions. And I believe he's talking more than just Uh, sinful or uh, sexually transmitted diseases here. I think there's more going on. In fact, I think even worse is that these sinful lifestyles that center around immorality lead to a loss of identity. We become something different than who God created us to be. We choose our own identity Instead of living out of the one that God gave us to thrive in. Because we cannot flourish when we forfeit God's divinely ordained purpose for our life. No matter what sinful lifestyle we might choose to pursue. When our depraved desires overrule God's design, it always, always, always 
leads to destruction. Think about it like this. Think about a fish who wants to find freedom. So he willfully jumps out of the ocean to land on dry soil so that he can be free from the water. You see, in our effort to find freedom, we cannot survive outside of the environment for which we were created to flourish in. That fish won't survive, and neither will we. Look at how he continues in verse 28. He says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, there it is again, to a depraved mind, to do so, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. <laughs> Do you kind of get the idea as we go through this as we're going from bad to worse? Is that not pretty clear by now? Our depraved desires lead to a depraved mind. A depraved mind does what is wrong and calls it right. Instead of submitting to God's authority, we become our own authority. And we decide to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves. So God gives us the ability to rule our own lives. And in our corrupt minds lead to a corrupt character. We become the antithesis of everything God created us to be, slowly dismantling the foundation that was created for our flourishing. Depraved minds ruled by selfish desires always leads to broken relationships. Our greed leads to envy, our envy to hatred, our hatred to strife, our strife to violence. Because when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, no one is accountable. Our human depravity eventually leads to social collapse. And let me ask you a question here. How many times, how many times does this have to repeat itself before we believe it's true? How many times? We see it in broken marriages that lead to divorce. We see it in broken families as, as kids rebel against parents and parents neglect their kids. We see it in the world that is ruled by chaos and disorder. How many times does it have to repeat itself before we believe it's true? Broken people produce broken relationships because people who are hurting hurt other people. Social disorder is simply the result of human depravity. Life apart from God will always lead to ruin, whether that's our own personal life or the life of the society that we live in. God will let us go our own way, but it will not be good. Look at how he continues and finishes in verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Depraved desires lead to a depraved character that results in depraved decisions. Not only do we strongly justify our own sin, we give hearty approval to the sin of others. The way we might hear that in our world today is this. You do you. You do you. 
you do whatever you want to do. I'll do whatever I want to do. The Bible says it this way. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. It's the very same thing. What's worse than continuing in our own lifestyle of sin is when we find enjoyment in the sin of other people. We watch movies filled with violence and immorality, and we don't even blink an eye. We live a secret life filled with pornography, and we determine that it's okay because it's not hurting anyone else. The bottom line is this. It's never, ever good when we decide to play God, determining for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Our willful decision to reject God's rule leads to our self-destruction. Because if God does not sustain us, we will destroy ourselves. Exchanging truth for a lie, we foolishly seek to flourish in God's creation on our own terms. We suppress the truth. We exchange the truth. We pervert the truth. That's the total depravity of man. And that depravity creates a huge chasm between us and God. And let me ask you this. Is there anything about our depravity that merits God's mercy? <laughs> Did you see anything in there? <laughs> I sure don't. And yet, even though our Heavenly Father releases us, He does not abandon us. Think about that. Even though He lets us go our own way, He does not abandon us. Instead of letting us wander aimlessly in the dark, he shines forth his light. And that life is made evident in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ our Lord. Colossians tells us that God rescues us. He rescues us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. God's mercy is a rescue mission. But we can only embrace the good news of a Savior if we acknowledge the depravity of our sin. You see, God cannot turn a blind eye to our sinful choices, sinful decisions that result from rejecting God's truth, willfully choosing to rule our own lives, foolishly determining what is good and what is right for ourselves. And we need to understand, that's what we do every single time we sin. We take what God says is wrong and we determine that it's right for us. And here's the deal. You cannot do enough right to resolve all the wrongs. You cannot do enough good to cover all that you've done bad. The best, in fact, the only thing that we can do is to admit that we are a sinner and acknowledge our guilt. And then look at the cross and see our, our guilt, the punishment that we deserve being placed on Jesus on our behalf. We have to believe, as we learn in 2 Corinthians, that 
He who knew no sin became sin. And we need to understand that that's our sin individually so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Like the prodigal son, we must find our security not in the pursuit of selfish pleasure but in the eternal loving acceptance of our heavenly father. The father who waits patiently, who looks longingly with eyes filled with forgiveness and with grace. A father who wants you to flourish in his loving care. True freedom is not found in doing what we want to do. That leads to slavery. True freedom is becoming everything God created us to be and trusting in him more than we trust ourselves. That's the message of the gospel. Let me pray for us, and then we'll close in song. Lord, this is heavy. (laughs) I feel it. I see it. But it's true. And until we recognize the reality of our sin, we will not embrace our need for a Savior. And Father, the more we understand the depravity of our sin, the depths of which that darkness goes, the more we will rejoice in the magnitude of the mercy that was extended to rescue us. Our worship of a Savior is tied directly to our understanding of the need we have apart from Him. And so, Father, I pray that as we finish up this morning and sing this song of worship, that our hearts, knowing from that which we have been rescued, would sing all the more loudly with rejoicing hearts because of the great work that you have done by taking what we deserve and placing it upon yourself so that we can become everything you created us to be, flourishing within the boundaries of your intended design, which is filled with his goodness and love and mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness and your grace, your mercy that is new every morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Amen. Let me be honest with you. There's a part of me that wants to apologize for a sermon like this because it's not very popular and it's hard. But here's the reality. I think that one of the reasons that we're in the mess we are in the world today is because we don't talk about the depravity of our sin and who we are apart from God. And too many times, even as believers, we can convince ourselves that we're doing just fine on our own. And I need you to understand By the truth of God's word, you are not. You're not doing just fine. And you desperately need a savior. And let me, I want you to understand this about what we talked about this morning. That savior has not abandoned you. He stands ready to forgive you, to embrace you, and to throw a feast for you. Just like we see with the prodigal son. So no matter where you are in your life, in this moment, I pray that you run to that Savior. And if you're running out of rejoicing because of all that he has done, then soak up the gladness and the goodness of who he is. And if you're running for forgiveness and grace and mercy, then you know that he has his arms wide open and he welcomes you home. So when you leave today, grab a hold of these truths. And no matter what you hear out there, know that this is 
this is God's word for your life. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for not holding back the hard stuff so that we can greatly appreciate the good stuff. Lord, thank you for the promise of your forgiveness and grace even in the rebellion of our sin. Thank you for not abandoning us. Mm. Thank you for waiting patiently for us. I just pray, Lord, that individually and corporately as your people, we may turn our hearts towards you and find mercy and grace in response to our heartfelt repentance and confession. And we pray this in your loving and holy name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.